Well, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you would. I understand that we are supposed to be in Daniel 7 this morning, which details the beast with iron teeth led by the Antichrist. But as you also know, it's Mother's Day. So I... I had the choice of preaching that or a different passage, and I chose the, the latter, <laughs> just so there would uh, not be any confusion as to what I might be implying. <laughs> I also chose it because mothers and women in general are greatly honored by God. Um, in fact, the most prominent section of Scripture in all the Bible highlights their value. The fifth commandment, number five in the Ten Commandments, says, Honor thy father and mother, so it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So the Old Testament summary of God's law, the the Lord's commands that He gives to us. Of course, there is the eternal law of God that was prior to, to time. And then it was given in the Mosaic Law, crystallized in the the Ten Commandments. And then, as you know, Jesus even simplifies that more. He distills it even more to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as a self. But in the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament summary of God's law, the the Lord commands us to give honor to to mothers. Not just one day a year, but your, your, your entire life. You're commanded to obey your father and mother as long as you are under their their roof. And yet you give them honor all the days of of your life. In fact, it's the only commandment in in, in all ten that relates to the family directly. Uh, Because if it's obeyed, then children learn how to function in life. I mean, if a child learns how to obey parental authority then they'll learn how to function under the various authorities that they'll encounter in in all of life, including God's authority. And conversely, a child that doesn't learn to honor, obey, and respect authority will will be headed for a world of difficulty. That's why the commandment says, that's what it means when it says, so it may be well with you, honor them, so it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. It's the only commandment with a promise attached to it. But beyond mothers, the Bible has a lot to say about godly women in general. They're presented in every human story in Scripture, directly or indirectly. It is the heart of a a woman that speaks the first words of faith after the fall in Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a child. And Eve said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's an echo of the promise that God made that there would be a a seed that would come from the woman that would crush the head of the the serpent. And she she got the wrong child, but she got the right intent. There was faith there. I've gotten a man from the Lord. The Lord promised this, and and this must be what's happening. It was a woman's sacrifice that brought Israel their first prophet. Hannah prayed for for Samuel and the the Lord heard her and granted her prayer. It was a a woman's wisdom in Proverbs 31 that Solomon forsook when he garnered many wives that led him away from, from God, the God of his fathers. And it was a woman that God first told about the Messiah's birth in Luke 126. He spoke to Mary. When God created mankind, He specifically chose to create females. I know He created males too, but this morning He created females. And He did that in order to display His, His, His image and make them vice-regents on the earth. A passage that you know very well. This is before the fall. This is part of creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, of all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And then God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. So both men and women each bear the image of God. And from that standpoint, there is no difference. Women possess God's image along with their male counterparts, and they image all of His communicable attributes, the things that you can communicate about God as being image bearers. There are things that we can't be like God. We're not omnipotent, we're not omniscient, we're not all of those things, but we, we can be loving and faithful and compassionate, and so in that image bearing, we, we communicate those things. Men and women do that, do that the same. Both men and women have the same capacity for great faith and trust in God. and They have a similar mental capacity, men and women, although some wives may question that about their husbands at times. They both have dominion and can create. They, they both have competence, can be used greatly of the Lord. And while they both similarly represent God, they... They reflect His glory in different ways, both image bearers, but, but reflectors of glory in different ways. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that. God chose to create male and female with unique characteristics that magnify His creative splendor. Understand that it may be difficult in our culture uh, to, to tell the difference because of the perversion of our society. But, but God intended there to be very specific distinctions. He painted in creation with bold differences, not blurred lines. The physical frame between men and women is very different in, in size and shape and parts and capacity. And You don't need a stick figure on a bathroom door to tell you that. God planned the peculiar ways women are different from men, and those distinctions are intentional. They're premeditated. They're calculated by the Creator before the fall, and that's, that's very important. That's where Paul roots this whole thing in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, or 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 15. It's before the falls. People will say the differences are after the falls. It's an aspect of the curse, but that's not true. And when God designed the various ways His creation would deliberately reveal His wisdom and wonder, He looked upon His creation and declared that they glorified Him and they were very good, the differences. It's not a testimony to our progress when people attempt to remove those distinctions. It's an expression of our explicit rebellion and denying that they exist at all, or attempting to alter them as sin. And who are we to take what God has created good and call it very good, and then try to uncreate that? So the men and women who pursue uniqueness, the uniqueness of their creation, are the ones that bring much glory to God, and sadly, those who diminish it lessen the praise that the Creator intended to receive. So today, we're going to receive a lesson from two women that applies to both genders, male or female. It's been said that the, the difficult decisions in life are, are not choosing between good and bad. You could typically see those, but choosing between what is good and what is best. Two good things, which is better. We can usually see the right or wrong, but choosing gets harder when you, you must select between two good things and couple that with the, the limited amount of time and multiple priorities, and you can find yourself in a very confusing place. And Luke chapter 10 has two lessons that, that help us with that dilemma. You're probably very familiar with, with this story, but you really need to, to see it in context to, to grasp its profound message. Luke chapter 10 is a unit. It, it all goes together. And the story of Mary and Martha that, that we read follows the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you know that very well, too. And both of those stories go together. They, they, they form like two sides of a, of a coin. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, the Lord has an encounter with a lawyer who asks him how to possess eternal life. Or, or we would say, how do you know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved, Lord? That seems what the lawyer, lawyer is asking. In, in Jesus' his response to this lawyer, who knew the law, knew it well. He was a lawyer, even quoted 
the essence of the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as himself. Jesus' response is the Good Samaritan story. In that story, the Lord says to this lawyer and us, a, a true disciple is not characterized by what he knows, but by doing what God says. And you know the story of the Good Samaritan. A, the priest and the Levite pass by, and the Samaritan does. He cares for this man who's overtaken by robbers. So the, a good summary of the lesson of that Good Samaritan story is... We don't just say we love God like, like the lawyer. We, we do what he teaches like the Samaritan, which means loving our neighbors. And that story applies to the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments is, focuses on, on the vertical. You shall have no other gods before me. And all of those in the beginning are about God. And in the second half of the Ten Commandments, it's all about loving your, your neighbor. You don't steal. You don't kill. You, you don't commit adultery. So on the flip side of the Good Samaritan, the story about Mary and Martha teaches us about the first half of the Ten Commandments. And the greatest commandment, which stands at the headwaters of all, you shall have no other gods before me. A disciple loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is expressed in Mary sitting at the feet of, of Jesus in this story. And in the story, Martha gets so distracted with her serving, she loses track of who she's serving and why she's doing it. And, and so Jesus gives her and us some help in prioritizing. The entire section is about how true disciples function. We're to put God first, we're to love God, and then we're to serve God. Others. A true disciple doesn't just say they serve, they do it, like the Samaritan. But, but our service flows out of our single-hearted love for the Lord, which looks like sitting at the Master's feet and hearing Him, intently listening to Him like, like Mary. Those are the characteristics of a true disciple, hearing and doing. You hear that echoed all through the New Testament. We pray that. We talk about listening to a sermon. We don't just be hearers of the Word, we want to be doers of the Word. And all of that begins with listening. It's quite easy to pit those two things together or forget one of them. And no doubt some of you have, are believers and, and you've forgotten why God saved you. And it wasn't for health or wealth or, or your, your mental prosperity. You were saved to live for Christ, to serve Him. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to serve the Lord. So living for God is service to others. That's why you exist. That's why you, were, you and I were saved. We were saved unto good works, which God has foreordained. And if you're in that category, you need to stop the inward focus and start ministering, frankly. It, you'll be a lot happier, and the joy of Jesus will, will flow again. But probably there are some others that you get the serving part and you treat your walk with Christ like the 12 dwarfs. Hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work, I go. And if you had to identify with one of them, you'd be grumpy dwarf. There's everything going out and there's nothing coming in. The joy and the refreshing presence of Christ has diminished and all that's left is dry labor, like rusty cog. And you need to get back to sitting at Jesus' feet. You need to hear what... Your Lord says to Martha, who is busied about many things, but neglected the one thing that is necessary. Sitting at the Lord's feet comes before washing the feet of others. This passage is very helpful because the Bible says there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven, but there is only one priority that's revealed in this passage. That's profoundly helpful in a complex life with everything vying for your time and your attention. You have one priority as a believer, male or female. Paul said, this one thing I do, and this passage is to help us get those things in the right order. And if you do, then you'll find purpose in serving. We'll call it three details that teach us the priority of choosing the one necessary thing. This uh, little scene in just a few verses, there's an encounter of, that 
shows a preliminary contact. Martha goes out ahead, and Mary remains behind. There's then Martha's misguided complaint when she's busied about many things in verse 40. And it all ends with Jesus' enlightening correction where he lovingly rebukes this, this disciple. This is the only place in Scripture that this story is mentioned, which makes it very significant. And I'll show you how it ties into the big picture before we're done. Let me show you the, the first detail found in the precedence of the preliminary contact, and you find Mary's or Martha's welcome and Mary's worship. Look, if you would, at verse 38. It says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So Jesus and his disciples leave the encounter with the, with the lawyer. At the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 in, in twos to to go ahead of him and to prepare his way for the, for the preaching and the teaching of the kingdom. And, and, and he follows along, and after that, that encounter, uh, after he's following along, he has this encounter with this lawyer, and, and after that he, he moves along and arrives uh, at a certain village, and he's immediately greeted by this woman named Martha. We learn later that the town is Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Now, I told you these two stories go together, the Good Samaritan with the lawyer and this story of Mary and Martha. And you can't take this too far, but it's interesting that the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan were traveling away from Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem, they were leaving Jerusalem, going toward Jericho, and were taught about serving others. And Jesus and his disciples are traveling toward Jerusalem, from Jericho, and we're taught about worshiping God. So the first group had worshipped God and they're leaving to serve and the, the other group is, is being taught about worship and they're headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented the, the locality of God's presence. And so the one group is departing God's presence to serve, love others, and, and then in the Mary and Martha passage they're headed toward God's presence to worship, love God in, in that order. Now Luke doesn't tell us the name of the town, but, but he does tell tells us the name of this woman who greets Jesus, because her actions are the, are the point of the story. Verse 38 says, Martha, uh, Martha didn't just greet him, she welcomed him into her house. And the Greek is specific. It hupodekamai, under and receive. So she received him under her roof. And, and it's a it's an enhanced word. It doesn't just mean to receive. I mean, she, she, she welcomes him in. And that goes back to Jesus sending out the 70. Look if you would at verse 8 of Luke 10. I told you Jesus sends out the 70, and he, and he tells them whenever they go, they're to lodge wherever they're received, wherever they're welcomed. And here's what he says to this, this group of his followers. He sends out, verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, it's just decamai, not hupodecamai, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter the town and they do not receive you, uh, go into, into its streets and stay. Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. He says there could be two responses. You're going out in my name, and there could be two responses. They'll either receive you or reject you. But look at how he describes the welcoming or truly receiving in verse 16. Look at verse 16. This is what Jesus means by whether they receive you or not. The one who hears you, verse 16, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So the Lord says receiving them is equated to listening to the message that they, that they bear. And not hearing is equated to rejecting God. And so back to Martha's story. Martha runs out ahead, and she, she welcomes Jesus under her roof. And that's more than just hospitality. Hospitality was expected in the culture. And, 
You're even to take in your enemy and feed him if he was hungry. But Mary is the one that truly receives Christ by receiving his words. Look, if you would, at verse 39, because here is Mary's worship. She has a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. So Mary is pictured sitting at his feet hearing, listening intently. Martha is seen welcome him. Martha takes the lead in receiving him. Mary takes the Lord by, by hearing him. And the point Luke is making is a true disciple is not one that just welcomes Jesus in. A true disciple is one who receives His words and, and does them, if, if you want to lump in the, the Good Samaritan passage. You don't just take Jesus into your heart. You receive His words in your ears. You can pray and you can ask Jesus to, to save you, but that's, that's not the end, that's the beginning. You're a follower. And His ways then become your way, your life, you... And you do that your entire life. You're receiving His words. And disciple is not one who, who just lets it go in one ear and out the other, they say. He's one who does the words of His teacher, like the Good Samaritan. But that begins with receiving His words, taking them in and following Him. He's your Lord. He's your teacher. He's your master. And so, so if that's the case... I'm afraid that there are many Christians that only pick up their Bibles on the way to church every Sunday, if even then. Or they neglect preaching. Why don't we sit at the feet and listen to His words whenever the opportunity allows for it? If, if you fall into that category, it may be because you've gotten the priority out of balance. You're still doing for the Lord. It's the key word in the... In the encounter with the lawyer, do. Look at Luke 10.25. The lawyer stood up and, and put him to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's all action-oriented. After correctly quoting the summary of the greatest commandments, and Jesus answers him in verse 28. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The key word there is do, but the key word in our scene with Mary and Martha is Lord. The lawyer calls Jesus teacher. Luke never uses the title Lord in that, in that encounter with, with the lawyer to describe Jesus. But in this passage, it's used three times. Mary sat at the Lord's feet in verse 39. Martha calls him Lord in verse 40. But the Lord answered in verse 41. You see how these two stories go together? A disciple is one who listens to his Lord, like Mary, and one who does his will, like the Samaritan. And you can't have one without the other. While he's called Lord by Martha, only Mary is treating him like the Lord, by listening to him. In fact, she's a silent witness. Did you ever notice that Mary says nothing in this passage? She, she never speaks. Her actions do, do all, of the, all of the talking. She's only sitting and listening to, to Jesus. Never opens her mouth, but her ears are open. And yet, whenever Martha opens her mouth, it, it exposes her real focus. This proclamation that she makes by her misguided complaint. There's a there's an impolite distraction, there's an irritable outburst here, and then there is an illogical order. I'll show you that when we get there. Verse 40. It says, But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. Now, frankly, I think this is one of the most mind-blowing verses in all of the Bible. I mean, when you truly understand what's, what's going on in, in, in this scene. I mean, Luke says Martha was distracted with, with much serving. The, the word means to busy oneself, to be pulled in every direction. Maybe a, a good illustration would be if you've ever showed up to, to, to someone's house um, 
and, and they had some issues getting things ready. The guests are supposed to be there at 6 o'clock, and you show up right up at 6, and, and they're flying everywhere. The oven door is coming open, and things are coming out. and things. I mean, this is the idea of what's going on with, with Martha. She's, she's frantic. There are at least 15 people here to serve, so this is not, a, not an easy task. There's Jesus and his 12 disciples, Mary and Martha. There's 16 if... If Lazarus was there, even though he's not mentioned in the passage, it could have been many more. I mean, I don't think Jesus just traveled with, with his disciples. But normal preparations for something like this should not cause Martha to be distracted to the point that she, she neglects her honored guest. I mean, normal procedure would be to, to sit and listen, but she's pictured rushing around serving. In fact, she would have already had the basics ready. So this is something extra that, that Martha is doing. Typically, she would have had notice ahead of time, like, like Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today I'm, I'm coming to your house. I mean, there would have been some announcement, like Jesus sends the 70 to prepare for his teaching. He would have told, he would have told Martha or, or Mary that, that he was coming. So the picture here is not just that Marcia is foc- uh, Martha is focused on the, on the wrong thing, it, she busied herself with preparation. She gets overwhelmed, and she's actually being impolite. She's not just neglecting her guests, though. She's neglecting the Messiah. Sometimes activities associated with Jesus can become more important than Jesus himself, if we're not careful. And when that happens, there's something out of line, and you have to stop. And you have to get it in order, it'll, it'll never work. Now, don't misunderstand this passage. God is not pitting serving against listening. This is not a passage for cont- the contemplative life. This actually is used by, in error by the Catholic Church to, as a basis for, for a convent. Mary and Martha, you should be like nuns. You, you just want to con- live a contemplative life and and not serve. But, but the answer here is not stop serving, but get the right order. The, the serving just came in the, in the Good Samaritan passage. The, the ear guides the heart, though, and then the heart directs the hands. And if, it stay, if that stays out of order too long, your heart grows dry and, and, and bitter. And so Martha has an irritable outburst here. Look at verse 40. And this is the mind-blowing part. So she's busying around, rushing around, and In verse 40, she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? It it says she approached him. She came up to him. Now, Now get this. She calls him Lord. So it's evident to, to these two women and everybody there that this is the Messiah. And he is in the room with people seated and he is teaching about the kingdom of God and people are listening. And Martha interrupts him. She approaches him in mid-sermon and stops him. I mean, I don't know a good analogy because, because no preacher is, is like the Lord, but it may be like me up here preaching, getting to a you know, a very significant moment in the middle of the sermon calling people to Christ and all of a sudden those, those doors bust open and somebody from the nursery comes in and says, stop the music, we don't have enough people in here. Can you get somebody out of this sermon and come in here and help us? I mean, that's the idea of what's, of what's going on. I need someone to help. That's the mind-blowing part. She does the same thing that the lawyer does. Instead of listening to his teaching, she interjects her own ideas. Do you remember what the lawyer said? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he wants to exalt himself, so he quotes the commandments, and Jesus says, yeah, do that. You know it, but do it. And so Martha indicts herself here. She questions the Lord's care. And she questions Mary's commitment. She interrupts him. She stops the teaching and questions his care. Look look, look at what she says. She says, Lord, it's the only time she calls him Lord, so it's evident she knows who he is. Lord, do you not care? Do you not see? Look at me. And look at her. 
she's exasperated. She, she blurts this out with anger, and she feels she has good reason to be annoyed. And in her mind, she is the one who is the true disciple, because she's doing all the work, and Mary is just listening. And, and in her comparison, she condemns herself. You ever done that? You ever come forward, forward with an argument that you think is locked tight and all the argument does is actually condemn you? She forgets in her working what motivates a true disciple and that's sitting at the Master's feet. When we get those two things out of order, serving becomes toil that you endure rather than worship that you give. And then others become a point of comparison not partners in the fight. Mary also doesn't just grumble against the Lord. She accuses Mary. She accuses God of not caring about her first. She's upset with the circumstances that she created and then blames God for not, re- not relieving them. It's like saying, why are you allowing this? Do you not see? Do something. It's the most common complaint in the Bible. Far too natural for, for my own heart. I'm sure you've never done that. Create a mess on your own and then blame God when He doesn't clean it up for you the minute that you ask Him to. What do the disciples say on the, in the middle of the storm? Same thing. Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Wake up. Do you not see? Of course He sees. Not only does He not... Not only does he see, but he's ordained the very circumstances that you're in the middle of. And rather than asking, why are you allowing this? You you have to turn your heart. You should be asking the Lord, what are are you doing through this? Not why is it coming, but what do you want to teach me? In what you sovereignly ordained. The why questions. God's care for us. It breeds more suspicion about God and His goodness. What leads us to, to think God is working something in our circumstance. What are you doing is a, is a question of faith. Why? Is a question of, of unbelief. I can remember getting very frustrated at, at the pastor that was discipling me uh, because I was very mystical at that point in time in my Christian life early on and I was very mystical about witnessing and I would I would, I would look for God's promptings and trying to figure out uh, who to witness to instead of just witnessing whoever would hold still, just tell them about Jesus. So look at this guy, you know, is it the Holy Spirit, you want me to witness to that person? Or, and I would just get really just convoluted and confused. And I can remember going through that. It was just such a hard week. And I explained, we was explaining that to this pastor that was discipling me, how hard it was. And, and he said, good, praise the Lord. And I just remember just being just so offended. What do you mean good? I mean, it was gut-wrenching. I spent like two days praying and trying to figure out what was going on. And he said, well, look at what God taught you through it. You might have got it wrong, but the Lord had a good lesson. Don't ask why, ask what. Because if you don't, you can you can get the master-to-servant thing out of order as well. Look at what she does at the end of verse 40. So she interrupts God teaching about the kingdom. She then accuses the Lord of not caring. She condemns her sister, compares and condemns her sister, and then she commands the Lord at the end of verse 40, tell her to help me. It is the illogical order. She finally orders Jesus. You talk about the opposite of what a disciple should be doing. Martha accuses Mary of being lazy and criticizes her. She becomes so inward turned. She focuses on herself, her labor, and she starts finding someone to to point the finger at and in turn tries to take away from her good thing. I don't miss what what she says to the Lord here is a, a little key. Look at verse 40. Pay attention to... To, to the words here in, in verse 40. She says, Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me 
to do all the serving. Your translation may not have those words in there, but it should. It means at one point that Mary was serving with her. So Mary was doing the serving. She was doing what she was supposed to be doing. But when the, when the time came and a greater priority, a more important task came, sitting at the master's feet and paying attention to him, she left off the serving and she started doing what she should have done. When it came time to do what was best, she, she did the right thing and sat at Jesus' feet. And the Lord wants listeners that become laborers, not servers that become critics. Besides, he can take care of his own disciples. Before the Lord, we all stand or fall. He doesn't need your help. Uh, this scene little, reminds me a little bit of, of John 21. You remember Peter? Peter fell and the Lord restores Peter at the very end of the Gospels before he uses him as the one who preaches at Pentecost. Peter denies the Lord three times, so three times Jesus restores him. Peter goes back to Galilee and he's fishing and... It's a scene where Jesus yells to him from the bank and Peter jumps in, it's the Lord, and, and he's got breakfast cooking there and, and, he, and he asks him the three questions, do you love me, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I do. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then he says to, to Peter, when you were young, you, you went wherever you, you, you willed. You, you commanded yourself. You, you were your own master. But now somebody's going to lead you. It's going to be all the way into the death. And he describes what kind of death that Peter's going to, going to die. And, and do you remember what Peter says? Um, what, what about John? What about this guy over here? How's he going to die? Is he going to die too? You remember what Jesus says? He says, you don't worry about John. Literally, you, me, follow. That's how it states. Take your eyes off of him, put your eyes on me, and follow me. He doesn't need our help. But don't you find it easy to do exactly what Martha does here when you get things out of order? Why don't they serve somewhere? I mean, they have kids in the church. They ought to be in Praise Factory like me. They ought to be in the, the Easter Cantata or whatever it is. I mean, what does the pastor do anyway during the week? I mean, you know, he only works three hours a week, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday? Do a lot of your conversations center around other Christians or, or the church and consist of complaints and criticisms? If so, the problem is not who you're criticizing. You may not share it publicly except for the 15 of your closest friends as a prayer request. But even if you don't share it publicly, you realize what that does to your own heart? I mean... How do you pray with that gunk in there? How can you pull in the right direction? How can you hear the Word of God whenever, whenever it's, it's clogged? You know, it's, you're not, if you're not growing and you're not getting anywhere or getting anything out of Sunday school or the sermons or your walk with the Lord, the first place you ought to look is a root of bitterness or, or the sin of a critical spirit. It will... It will clog your spiritual pipes and, and you need confession and repentance. It's a draino that will, that will clear that out. And it will kill your appetite and stop up your ears. And then you'll end up blaming somebody else for your own spiritual condition. Look at this last part here, this, the Lord's enlightening correction. In verse 41, he, he expresses affectionate disapproval. Evident denial, and then he points to an appropriate desire. Look at you at verse 41. It says, But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, normally, whenever my mother spoke my full name, William Brian Farrell, uh, a rebuke was coming, right? And usually a chestnut switch. Well, Jesus doesn't repeat her full name, but he repeats her name twice. And he does that before giving a concerned correction. It's an expression of compassion. 
means showing her his great affection for her with the repetition of her name, Martha, Martha. But he's also expressing a sincere disapproval of her attitude. He goes on to correct her. You're worried and bothered about many things. God loves us even in, even in our sin. But our unbelief about his care and critical spirit toward others grieves him. And he loves us enough to, to point that out and to correct us. But he'll discipline us if we're saved as, as, as sons. There's no discipline from the Lord. The, the Bible says that, that you're an illegitimate child. Look at how he corrects her in verse 41. You're worried and bothered about so many things. And here's the... Here's the evident denial. He points out her sin. She was inwardly worried and outwardly upset. You're worried and bothered. There's the inward part. It's affecting you inside. It's in your heart. And it's about outward things. You're worried about so many things. You're troubled about many things. But one thing is the main thing. And Mary chose that. Everything flows out of our relationship with Jesus. And if that's off, everything's off. It's Christian's priority. Both Martha and Mary are doing activity for the Lord. And ladies, you have many priorities. You must be a faithful wife if you're married, a good mother, a diligent employee, a helpful servant in the church. But you have one priority and that is to seek Christ through listening to, to His words, to know Him. That's the evidence that, that you're a follower, that you long to hear His words, to, that you long to know Him. Sit at His feet, if you will. Everything else flows out of that. Now, there must be something that flows out of that. That's the lesson about the Good Samaritan. But, but unless God is, knowing God is prior, nothing else matters. It says 1 Corinthians 11 says, without love for God, we're a, a clanging symbol. If you would at verse 42, here's the appropriate desire. But only one thing is necessary, the Lord says, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus then shows her what is appropriate in this case. There's one necessary thing, and that's to worship Him by hearing His words. And He calls it something specific, something that, that Martha would have understood, that any Jew would have understood. She calls it, he calls it the, the good portion or the, the better portion. It's an Old Testament reference. It says of Mary, she was listening to the, to the Lord's words. This is not a casual conversation, Mary's not just a busybody wanting to, to, to listen in. She was being taught like the rest of the disciples. And the Lord is teaching and she realizes that these are the very words of God. She knows it's the Lord. She doesn't want to miss a one. So she's seated at His feet in the position of a learner. But, but the Greek indicates something, something more, I, I think. It, it's a, a compound word. She, she's sitting beside him, alongside his feet. and she's, It's like she's as close as she can get. It's a posture of a learner, but, but she's leaning in to get all she can. She, she's leaning in with expressing intense interest. She doesn't want to miss a word. And you can say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what God says. But you can't do what he says until you sit at his feet and hear his words. Martha's putting final touches on the meal. She's even doing it for the Lord. She's maybe getting his bed ready, putting out the fire. I don't know. And the Bible commands us to show hospitality and women to be keepers of, of their homes. But, but the problem is not what she's doing, but the order in which she's doing it. She had her priorities wrong. And when she had the opportunity of a lifetime to sit at the feet of Christ, she chose something good, but not what was best. And so Jesus says, Mary has chosen the right priority, and you have not. And that was right because it was the good portion. 
One's portion is an Old Testament reference to fellowship with, with, with God. It means a, a person's greatest possession is their close fellowship with the Lord. It's one's portion of life, Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the, the Lord and inquire in His temple. Psalm 73, whom am I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is my portion. He's my first choice. He's who I seek. And look at what Jesus says about about what Mary says. It's necessary. She's chosen the necessary thing. It's chosen. It's good. And he says it will remain and not be taken away. It's necessary. A relationship with your Creator, fellowship with the Lord is life. To to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the air that you breathe. In Him we live and move and have our being. It's bread for your soul. And man shall not live by bread alone. And, and, And Mary chose it. You chose to be here this morning. You can choose to be anywhere else. It's your choice whether you... You make the Lord your portion or not. Whether you yield your stubborn heart to Him, whether you cultivate fellowship with Him, whether, whether you make your walk with God your priority or, or not something else, it's something you choose. And He says it's good. She's chosen the, the good portion. There's nothing sweeter than to trust in Jesus. And the countless millions who could say God is good because they know Him and they've walked with Him. And Jesus says that will remain. That won't be taken away from her here and that won't be taken away from her in eternity. It will never be taken away from you if you make the Lord your portion. The only thing that will last is your walk with God. Your health won't remain. Your marriage won't even remain. Your children may even leave. Hopefully they'll leave at some point. Your friends won't remain, your your job won't remain, money won't remain. The only thing that will remain is your knowledge of Christ. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that we may know Him. Think about it, only the knowledge of God is eternal, and salvation is knowing Him, and you'll have all eternity to fill up what is lacking. And so your pursuit right now, whenever you come to know that Jesus is God, is is to pursue Him and to know Him up until the time that you're taken into heaven when you're glorified, and then you have all eternity to fill up what's what's lacking. And it'll take a never-ending period of time to know this good God who saved you. And that's what Mary's doing. And that's how the story ends in Luke. So I found myself thinking, did, well, I mean, okay, did, did Martha ever get it? I mean, did she get mad and quit? Did, did she drop what she was doing and, and set at his feet? I mean, did she burn out and say serving God was, was not worth it? Did, did Jesus say, you know, you have little faith, and I'm not wasting any more time on this ungrateful grumbler? Well, you've actually already received the answer. In the Easter sermon, if you were here, the answer is actually in another gospel, what happens. You should be familiar with that because we went over it. It's, it's in John 11, the story of Lazarus when he dies. You remember? Jesus teaches these two women another lesson. They're very important to the Lord. They're here, and he waits a few days, even though he knows Lazarus died, in order to teach Mary and Martha Another lesson. And how did they respond then? Then Martha is still serving and there's not a hint of criticism toward, toward Mary. John eleven twenty. 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, she went out and, and, and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house. You have the exact same pattern. Martha rushes out to, to welcome the Lord. Mary is back in the house and... Martha says, no complaints. In fact, in this passage about the raising of Lazarus, it contains two of the most significant professions of faith in all the Bible, and both of them are uttered by 
Martha, not Mary. She gets the lesson. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, you will give it. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha received God's correction, and she chose the right portion. And now she finds joy in serving, even in the midst of the death of her brother. And obviously the question when you come to a passage like this is, what about me? What about you? Where's your priorities? Where is your priority? There's all kinds of priorities out there. But this one thing is necessary. And the way that you show that you get it is you sit at his feet, which just simply means that your ears are turned, you're, you're leaning in. When you have opportunity to, to listen to the words of God, you do. And you desire to do that. So how are your priorities? Lost some joy in serving? Maybe you need to turn the cat around. You've been stroking it the wrong way. <laughs> serving first, do and being later. Maybe confess the sin of a critical spirit, serious sin, and then choose Christ as your portion. You'll be eternally grateful, and you'll be full of joy until that day. Let's pray. Father, we come to you on this day honoring the women that are here as you've commanded us to do so. Thank you for godly mothers. Mothers that have told us about Christ. Mothers that have prayed for us. Mothers that still do that. And Lord, there are probably mothers here who have faltered and and failed. There may be even people here that that don't have a, a godly mother. And in that case, just like on Father's Day, you, Lord, fill up what is lacking. You are our Heavenly Father, and you are enough to make up for whatever is lacking on earth. Help us, Father, to keep this one priority, Christ, before us. And may you fill us with joy as we serve. Bless the women of this church. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.